this is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today we wanted to kick off a new mini-series all about roll overload. We're going to dive into what exactly roll overload is in just a second, but it is our take on the work-life balance conversation, if you will. Even though I don't love that term, but yeah, well, gr- fine. <laughs> insert eye roll here. Because <laughs> everybody knows that the whole work-life balance conversation, as much as I am obsessed with it, is inherently flawed when you frame it that way. So instead, we're going to talk about the many roles that women play in society, at work, in our families, and how sometimes those can be put at odds and can lead to a lot of stress. Today, we're going to zoom in on and really focus on the role of working daughter with a guest who I know you're going to love to hear from in just a little bit, who has studied this issue, who has lived this issue, and who's going to help us understand what it really means to be a working daughter in today's world and why we need so much more support and conversation for women, especially women in their 40s, who are juggling paid work, child rearing, and elder care. Something I found so fascinating about this is that role overload really is this term to describe this feeling of wearing many hats, right? We're daughters, we're wives, we're you know mothers, we're employees, we're sisters, we're friends, we're all of these things. This is a lot, right? This is a lot to juggle. And sometimes these things can actually be in conflict with each other. And that's when you have what we call role conflict. That's not just juggling many things. You feel like you can't be a good employee and also be a good daughter. You feel like you can't be a good mother and also be a good something else. It's a sense that all of these roles and all of these hats that women find themselves wearing day to day are really not working well together. Yeah, it feels like you're being pulled in every direction. And I think that's like the birthplace of guilt, right? This very social emotion of letting someone else down or letting yourself down, not living up to the mom you knew you could be or the great employee you could be. It's like acknowledging that you're giving 80% instead of 100% can be such a source of strife and guilt and stress for the women I work with, especially. I was just going to say, at least in my mind, this is what causes burnout, right? If If you spend every waking moment feeling like you're letting someone down. So if you're kicking ass with your husband, then you're not being a good employee. If you're kicking ass with your parents and you're being a great daughter, then you're letting your kid down, right? If you spend all day, every day, feeling like you're letting somebody down, that you're dropping some ball in the equation, yeah. some, some th- somewhere something is being effed up and it's your fault, like in a faraway land, you can just feel it, it's always nagging at you. <laughs> That's what burnout is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a sense of chronic stress. I mean, we could dive deeper into burnout. You know I love that topic. But, Do you? <laughs> but it's just, it's interesting that... The roles that we as women have played, especially in American society over the last hundred years, have shifted, right? So these concepts of role overload and especially the stress-inducing feeling of role conflict, they're relatively new in that if you think about when women first entered the workforce in mass, and yes, that was a very white, a very middle-class resurgence because many women who weren't white and middle-class have been working for a lot longer, but... Post-World War II, women enter the workforce in mass for the first time. It's not like they're not also expected to have a great Thanksgiving 
dinner on the table too. Right. Right. It's not like our roles changed. We didn't become male. Like the, the, the stereotypical male model of, of the gender role didn't just flip a switch. It just was another layer added on to our expectation. Congratulations, ladies. Welcome to the workforce. <laughs> right. Enjoy your like added, your compounded roles and obligations to society. Right. And I think it is interesting how men's roles are st- starting to change a lot more, right? We've seen men do more around the house than ever before. We talked in our men messier than women about the numbers on cleanliness. Guess what? The data's in. Men are still less likely to be cleaning than the women in their lives. But this feeling of rural conflict is inherent to what the female role model has been and what this idea of like what it means to be a good woman in today's society can leave women feeling this sense of being in a double bind, right? Feeling guilt-stricken and worried about personal matters while at work and worried about work stuff while you're at home. So you never get a break, really. If you're if you're feeling guilty at work because you're dropping the ball at home, and then when you're at home, you're feeling guilty because you're dropping the ball at work, you're just feeling like crap all the time, never <laughs> getting a break. It's almost why I love my weird schedule right now, which is like super concentrated work binges when I'm on the road, and then I'm very chill when I'm at home, and I'm much more present. I'm mindful about being present with my partner, but when I go home for the holidays, y'all, this, prob- this could not have been a better timed episode, because buckle up, get ready for Thanksgiving, get ready for the holidays at home, that That is when I am statistically most likely to cry out of feeling like a failure because my family, first of all, there's a lot of them. You know the you know the feeling, right? I know the feeling. Six of us, if like without partners included, so there's more than six of us around the table, and it it always goes like this: Emily, when am I going to get some FaceTime with you? I know you're a hot shot. I know you're really important. Blah blah blah. But when are you going to have time for dear old dad? And my. My dad will lay this guilt trip on me, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to walk with mom, because I'm going to spend some time with her, and then, like, dad wants to, like, go to the movies together, and we're all going to be together all the time, and God forbid you should have to answer an email, like, in a corner of the house alone for any minute at all. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, this is like, I feel like my you're speaking my language. My family... God love them. They're <laughs> all insane, and they really, like, guilt is like a currency. I just, it's really, you know... <laughs> Ugh, I could talk all day, but I completely feel you. Um, and I think it really is about finding balance. What I like about your situation is that you sort of, if you look at your, you know, a calendar month or something, it's like, these are my intense work times where I'm very focused. These are my home times where I'm very chill. These are the times where I'm going to be guilt stricken because it's Thanksgiving and I'm feeling all kinds of feelings and I'm getting, you know, but at least it's not like a constant calendar year of guilt is what I'm saying. At well, least you've got it like <laughs> segmented. I've meth- I've become methodological about it because that's who I am, as you know. <laughs> so now there's like a certain hours cap on how long Emily can be at home with, uh, with the full family, who I love, by the way. Hi, mom. Um, but it is, you know, you have to know your boundaries. And, and I think honestly, for me, being assertive, being unapologetic about my boundaries, standing up for myself, much easier to do in a professional setting than in home, in my relationship. Well, that's because your, you know, your clients <laughs> didn't give birth to you, I don't think, right? right. So it's like, you know, you can, it's somehow the, somehow the guilt is different. It is. Yeah. It's like, well, these people are paying me to do a job for them. I'm going to do the job and then set some boundaries that make my ability to do that job more efficient. So mm. I know what I need to do to do a great job for them. They want me to do a great job. It's a give and take with your family. 
it's like all collapsed, right? Yeah. And then it's got that added layer of guilt because they had you, they raised well, you, they kept love, you out of trouble. Yeah, that's right? what love is, it's right? It's like the flip side of love, which is like guilt, pain. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, it turns out this this experience is far from unique because in a recent study from MIT's Work and Family Institute, uh, in households with both men and women working full time, women reported feeling preoccupied and thinking about work. 34% of the time while at home. That's a lot. That's a kind of a lot. Whereas men reported feeling that way only about 25% of the time. So surprise, surprise, women are feeling a tighter squeeze when it comes to feeling guilty when they're about work when they're at home. Yeah, and it's interesting because 25% isn't a great percentage either. Like, why in this country, this is a very American-centric study, by the way, and it feels like a very American-centric problem. Why is unplugging so rare. I think it's no surprise. I mean, I think it's part of it is because we glorify not unplugging. The research is pretty clear that women tend to feel that extra pressure of staying hypervigilant on top of work, which doesn't surprise me either if you think about how women are chronically discriminated against in the workplace, right? In a world that doesn't even pay women equally for equal work, in a world that passes over women for promotions, it doesn't surprise me that when women are at home and are technically not working, that we are still more preoccupied with work. What I found fascinating, and this is in the world of organizational psychology, where these terms like role conflict and role overload have come from, is this spillover effect, that feeling of being stressed out about one part of your life while trying to focus on another, is even more prominent for men when it comes to the opposite direction. So women are more likely to be preoccupied about work when they're at home. Men, if they have a conflict in their personal lives, if they had a fight with their partner, if they are experiencing some kind of personal stress, men are much more likely to experience that spillover of stress while trying to be at work. See, that doesn't surprise me at all, and here's why. So this is completely my anecdotal (laughs) opinion, things I've seen. I feel like women are socialized a lot more to do a lot of emotional self-reflection. And so if I have a big fight with my mom... It's just in my nature to talk to a friend about it, to spend time thinking about it, you know, processing it. I feel like men are not socialized to do that, right? The idea of women getting together with their girlfriends and talking about boyfriend trouble, husband trouble, whatever, that's a common thing in popular culture. Men, not so much. And so I feel like it's that, at least in my opinion, I think it's that attitude that women have other outlets to process and deal with personal stressors so they're not bringing it into the office. Also added to that is that the idea that women, you know, if you if you have a bad day with your husband and come into the office upset, we have that added stereotype of being like, oh, she's emotional, she's right. crazy, blah, blah, blah. I feel like all of these ways that we're socialized differently as men and women, that's why, that explains why totally. men are more likely to bring their personal stress into the office because they're not socialized to have an, you outlet. Know, have an outlet, talk to your friends, like be like, spend some time processing, you know, women, that's all we're taught. You know, you're taught that like, you're supposed How to do analyze. You feel? Yeah. <laughs> when a guy sends you a text, the, the, the joke is like, oh, you're like analyzing it with your girlfriends for an hour, right? Like that is what we are taught. I yeah. feel like I love this piece of data though, because it flies in the face of that sort of commonly repeated stereotype that men are somehow better at compartmentalizing. It's not that simple. It's just not that simple. I think the idea that we all experience some kind of spillover of stress uh, between the roles that we play is an important baseline to acknowledge. The other thing that this research really pushes back on is this idea that role overload means women should just stop working. 
right? Because someone might look at this data and say, well, if you're trying to be everything to everyone and that's causing role conflict, women should just get back in the kitchen, you know, check out of the office. like Because we all are in that financial situation. (laughs) Or like want to be not working, either or, right? There are literally, there are parts of the internet that are like, poor women, like they shouldn't be forced to work anymore, take a load off, get back in the kitchen, get back to child rearing, that sort of most benevolent version of sexism. And the research actually shows that working women, working mothers in particular, are more likely to have higher rates of happiness than women who don't work at all. I believe that so easily. I mean, my mom is a a doctor and she's the best. But when I was growing up, I would often look at my classmates who had stay-at-home moms, and I was a little, like, envious. and be like, oh, they always have baller, you know, lunches packed for them, and, like, all these, all those little things that you notice as a kid. And, you know, shout-out to stay-at-home moms. Nothing wrong with that at all. But I know that, I know my mom, she would be miserable as a, as a stay-at-home mom. I know her. Right. She would be twitching. She would be turning the lives of her children into her job in a kind in a way that's not healthy. She needs that outlet. That's part of her right. identity as a woman. That's part of who she is. And so I look at someone like my mom who would be so miserable as a stay-at-home mom. And so this idea that, oh, all of your problems will evaporate if you just stopped working, that advice clearly doesn't work for everybody. Exactly. And so in this series, we really want to look at role overload in terms of, okay, when is it that tipping point moment? Because the many roles that we wear are often core to our identities, just like you were saying. You know, I recently attended a friend's wedding and hearing the people who were giving speeches say, you know, I know this person from their role in the community theater, their role running for local office, their role as a campaigner, their role as a professional, you know, the many different outlets and identifiers and activities that these two folks do that makes them such an amazing couple. That's core to who they are as individuals. But what is that tipping point into the role overload domain? At which point society makes it really freaking hard for you to be able to achieve your full potential at work. And the first in this series that we really want to dive into is often missed completely. I mean, it's almost invisible. It's completely invisible because we hear a lot about working mothers. But what we hear less about is working daughters. And after this quick break, we're going to hear from my friend, author Liz O'Donnell, who's going to shed light on what it looks like to be a working daughter in America today. We're back, and we are so excited to dive into this topic of what it really means to be a working daughter. Now, bringing some expertise on this issue is my friend, author, speaker, and award-winning blogger, Liz O'Donnell. Liz is the author of her book, Mogul, Mom, and Maid, The Balancing Act of the Modern Woman. And she is a recognized expert on balancing elder care and a career. She's written about these issues in The Atlantic, Time, Next Avenue, USA Today. She's been interviewed by WNYC, our pals over at WNYC and a lot of other fabulous radio shows and podcasts, now including Stuff Mom Never Told You. Liz, we're so glad you could join us today. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. So tell us, what does working daughters, that term, really mean to you? Well, to me, it means women who are balancing elder care and career. It occurred to me when I was out uh, promoting my book about working mothers and I had this, like, one heck of a day that started at 6 and ended at 11, and in between 
and took my mother to the doctor and to get medication and help my dad. Driving home at 11 o'clock that night, I'm like, okay, working mothers, yep, that's an issue and we need to deal with it, but working daughters are out there too and nobody's talking about them. Yeah, working daughters, right? So many of us, I think, immediately identify like, yeah, I'm a working daughter, but it doesn't necessarily become a huge role that we're identifying with until our parents get a little older. Exactly. Liz, I'm curious, um, can you describe a bit about the extra burden that these working daughters face when they're, when they're sort of juggling all these different roles in the workplace and with their family obligations? What does that look like? What does it look like to be a working daughter? Well, the the typical family caregiver is a woman in her mid to late 40s, and she's got at least one parent who's um, 65 or older. She's got at least one kid at home, 18 or younger. She works and um, probably spends, they say, an average of 20 hours a week on elder care, too. So, I mean, you know, there's the fact that she has three jobs, if you will, right? She has the paid job, she has the parenting job, and then she has the elder care job. And um, and the fact that this is hitting so many women at the time it does, late 40s, early 50s, you know, that's that's when we're in our final push on our peak earning years. Um, that's when we run the risk that if we leave work and we try to come back, chances are really good or bad, I should say, right, that we're going to be rehired. So there's a lot of fear and pressure to make all of those roles work at once, Um and these are women who they're not just driving their parents to the doctor. They're, they're administering meds. They're doing lots of medical tasks. They're doing, you know, wound care and injections and changing feeding tubes. And, I mean, it's stuff that you, you kind of like to think that the medical industry is handling this stuff, but you've got family members who are handling this stuff. Well, that was one of the things I found so fascinating in your article for The Atlantic called The Crisis Facing America's Working Daughters is that when it comes to being a, a parent, there's no kind of shifting of understanding of roles when it comes to childcare responsibilities, because when you have a kid, you understand that you are a parent that's going to involve, you know, giving medicine, changing diapers and all of that. But when you're talking about being a working daughter and taking care of, a, a you know, a, an aging parent, no one really talks about what that actually looks like, changing diapers, administering, you know, medicine, giving shots, wound care, things that can be kind of heavy and emotional. There's no sort of corresponding emotional weight associated with doing those things for a child. Yet here we are not talking about that extra sort of layer of, of heaviness and emotions when it comes to that that very real role reversal. Yeah, the- right. Talk about stuff mom never told you, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously. It's such a psychological moment when you have to recognize that your parents who you turn to and rely on for support, emotional and otherwise, are now not in a position to support you, but beyond that are in need of your support in return. So you write about the sort of added psychological stress that can come with navigating a role transition like that. Can you tell us about how that was presented in your life while while you were starting to tackle these issues in the public domain, this became very personal for you, didn't it? Yeah, it really did. I was, I mean, and, and so what happens to so many caregivers and happened to me is what they call the caregiver creep. So your parents start to age. You may be the adult child who lives near them or for whatever reason, you know, takes on some responsibility. And so you start with, you know, maybe mowing their lawn or, helping them around the house, taking them to the doctor, doing the grocery shopping. And so it, it creeps up on you until you don't realize that you are the caregiver. And then for me, 
um, both of my parents got sick at the same time. So they were actually both diagnosed with terminal illnesses on the same day. I went from one hospital and heard Alzheimer's and then to the next hospital and they said stage four ovarian cancer. So my, my story is a little crazy, but yeah, all of a sudden you're in it and you don't know that your friends are in it. I mean, one of the things that was really interesting to me is I have a friend um, who I know through parenting. You know, we both wrote blogs. We were both in the Listen to Your Mother show, which gives voice to mother's experiences. Had no idea that we also had this daughterhood connection until later when we started talking about it. You just don't know that other people are in it with you because it's not a really fun thing to talk about. You're talking about disease. You're talking about dying. And these are things that, you know, respectable people don't talk about out in public. So that's a big part of it. The other part of it is, you know, they talk about a role reversal where you go from being the daughter and it's your parents that you look to to sort of provide all kinds of support to you, mostly, you know, emotional and just being the grown-up, right? And then all of a sudden you're the grown-up. And that's that's a big reversal that you have to navigate. And at the same time, if you're doing it well anyway, you're being respectful of your parents' autonomy. Right. So it's not like, you know, a baby who you say, well, you don't even have to say. You just show up at daycare and drop them off after you've, you know, vetted them. Because, but because you're not going to have a conversation with a three-month-old, oh, I'm going back to work, and you're going to be at this place. Do you like it? But you have to have that conversation with the parent. They're adults, and they need to have some autonomy and choice. Yeah. Something that, that struck me in the story that you were just telling about your own experiences is bonding with other people who were in that same situation. How important would you say it's been for you to have a community of folks going through this same situation in terms of dealing with this? Is that something that has kind of helped ease the burden of this a bit or just having someone who you know is going through that same experience? Is that something that folks should seek out if they are struggling with elder care and balancing all these roles? Yeah, I think it's huge, um, and that's part of the reason I started the website Working Daughter, and I care a lot about you know, labeling things, right, because if labels like Working Daughter or Family Caregiver, they give you a vocabulary, vocabulary leads to dialogue, and I think it's so important that we, you know, we don't go through this alone. It's um, not a team sport right now, the way that we handle it, but I think it really should be. I mean, you know, just like parenting, it takes a village, Um but if you're not talking about it, if other people aren't talking about it, you don't know where to go to get that support and that structure that you need. I run a um, private Facebook group, and there are about 550 women in there. Um, and it is just amazing. You know, some days are busier than others, so you don't look at the group, and you come home late at night, and you see the conversations that these women, and there are men in there too, are having, and the way that they uh, validate each other's experiences share so generously their own experiences and advice. It's just kind of phenomenal. And I mean, of course we need that. And I think one of the things that's so valuable in there is there are so many stigmas around um, caregiving and the feelings that you have. Um, You know, you can be really resisting the day that you're no longer going to have a parent, but also wondering when caregiving years are going to be over. You know, so these, these two thoughts can be happening at once and it can sound awful that, you know, you're supposed to be this loving daughter. You're not supposed to be thinking, when is this going to end? Because you know what the end looks like, but that's very real. I mean, there, so there are these thoughts that we have that maybe the general population or people who haven't been through it might think are, you know, scandalous, but we know that it's just a natural part of caregiving. And so you have to have space to have that conversation. And it's amazing to me that there are so few spaces and communities where 
folks who are really primary caregivers for elders can find that kind of camaraderie in a country where there are 44 million estimated 44 million unpaid elder care providers. And we know that the majority of those folks are women. So how does that break down? Like, why do you think this is especially salient for women who we know still shoulder the majority of housework and childcare duties? You know, what does this look like when it comes to impacting women's earnings? Because the majority of elder care seems to fall on women's shoulders as well. Well, I think that is part of the reason it feels like early days around the conversation. I mean, there are lots of great um, caregiving and general resources out there. My own experience of many of them was that they assumed sort of a leave it to beaver, um, you know, family dynamic and lifestyle and that we all went into this, um, you know, what a gift, isn't this wonderful, what a blessing. And it doesn't always feel like that, especially when you're working full time, you have kids and, you know, you're going out of your mind. It doesn't always feel like a blessing. Um, but there wasn't a lot that I found of practical advice for this this working daughter. And I'm sure that just speaks to, you know, how long women have been at work and how long we've been primary breadwinners and all that good stuff. But the earnings impact is, you know, it's really important that we think about this because, you know, I mentioned that the average caregiver is, a woman in her 40s, so you really run a great risk if you leave the workforce about re-entering. You also are probably experiencing this compound effect, you know, so you may have already been affected at work by working motherhood. You know, that could mean have you've been mommy tracked or you know, passed over for plum opportunities. You might be, you know, lingering in middle management for the rest of your days, um, probably making less on the dollar than your male peers, right? So all the things we know women experience as the result of being mothers in the workplace, And now all of a sudden you're vulnerable again at a really critical age and time in your career. And once again, you need flexibility. Once again, you need paid time off. Once again, you could be passing up opportunities for plum assignments. And it feels really stressful that you're going to be able to hang on to that career at a time when it's so critical to hang on to your career. And if you don't, you know, they estimate that women lose around $300,000 in lifetime earnings, wages, and benefits as a result of elder care. We're going to live longer than men. We're going to have to fund a longer retirement. So, I mean, it's just simple math that we need to keep women at work. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, so you mentioned that the average caregiver is a woman in her 40s, but you also mentioned that you actually have men in your Facebook group to deal with elder care solutions. I'm wondering, like, we know that men also help out with aging parents. What does it look like for men and how is it different than what it looks like for women a lot of times? Yeah, I mean, the the statistic, the the average statistic I see is that um, 40% of caregivers are men. I've seen as low as 20, but I think it's safe to assume around 40 um, because it's rapidly growing. There are 10,000 people turning 65 every day. So, um, you know, we need all hands on deck in coming years. Right. So if if men aren't caregivers now, you know, really good chance that they will be soon. Um, I think the the challenge, I think the conversation is very similar to what you see with parents, right, with uh, working mothers and working fathers. We're seeing more conversations in recent years about fatherhood and, and millennial men wanting to be more hands-on and have that flexibility. So I think, you know, similar challenges around elder care. For the women, those challenges are the compound effect that I just talked about. You know, you're squeezed the beginning of your career. You're squeezed again later, potentially. You're in those vulnerable positions. Um, you know, you may be making less on the dollar. You may be needing to save more, et cetera, et cetera. I think the good thing for women, and it's the same for working mothers, is we have the conversations and we have the vocabulary and the space to be flexible and to talk about the impact. 
uh, for men, sort of the same thing. I think they may not have the other um, crunches on their career as a result of being men in the workplace, but they may also not have the same sort of safety and, um, what's the word I'm looking for, permission, right, to talk about the stresses of balancing work and family. So there's that for them. Yeah. I also wonder if the uh, workplace perception is different. You know, we talked in an episode called The Mommy Tax about how women leaving the office to go take care of children are seen as less committed, are assumed to be less engaged in the office, even though mothers, working mothers, are shown to be some of the most efficient workers in the entire workforce. Whereas working fathers who leave for the baseball game are seen as like charming, sweet, caring people. <laughs> and I would just wonder, you know, they're, they're, it does seem like this has more silence and shame around it because no one's bragging about going to pick up your mom, you know, at the home to take her for a stroll. Like it feels like a very hush hush, uh, workplace conversation. And I just wonder if men feel that same kind of penalty that women do. Um, clearly there needs to be more research to really get to the bottom of that. But I don't know. Do you feel like men in the office might be perceived differently for leaving to go care for an elder than women are? You know, personally, I haven't encountered a ton of men who, you know, in the workplace who are dealing with this. Um, but certainly, you, you know, you you all and and this is anecdotal. This is not research based. But right, I mean, it's the same thing as you were saying. There's always the what a great guy, attaboy, or the men who step up to do family work, right, versus the woman who is just expected to do it and makes us crazy, right? Um, I was at a panel discussion about a year ago here in the Boston area. Um, maybe 10 people on the panel, top doctors from some of the great hospitals here, top um, insurance company executives, top senior living executives. I heard the word daughter seven times. I never heard the word son. So I think that's the other thing. Even if we are looking at a 60-40 gendered split among family caregivers, the expectation is still that we will be those good doting daughters and that it's going to be the woman. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we want to dive into what companies and what the United States can do to make this stress, to make this pressure for working daughters a little less stressful. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. back with speaker, author, and working daughter, Liz O'Donnell, talking all about the double pressure that women with aging parents and, and who are primary caretakers for those aging parents face, especially in those key income earning years in our 40s, when we might also have children still under our roofs who need our care as well. So Liz, we've talked a lot about what this problem looks like and how it can impact men and women, but I'm curious sort of what's being done or maybe what's not being done to kind of address this. Yeah, I mean, I would say not enough. <laughs> not enough is being done. Um, I, I would say I'm encouraged by the conversation. Uh, we are hearing more about elder care um, in the workplace and elder care is an issue. So that's good news. That's progress. Um, Sometimes it's still just a uh, clause in a sentence, you know, American workers need, you know, maternity leave and paternity leave and paid leave, and, you know, they're squeezed by taking care of children, comma, and their aging parents, comma, and that's all we're getting, but it's more than nothing, right? Um, and so what I, I really think, you know, we need to label this issue, we need to have a national dialogue around it, and from the work perspective, 
really make sure that we're not just talking about the challenges of employees who are parents, but we're talking about employees with parents. I mean, if you look at the, I think the number of working mothers in the United States is, what, 23 or 25 million is the estimate. The number of working daughters is around 21 million, the estimate. So, you know, why aren't we solving for both? So not just talking about parent leave, talking about family leave, not just talking about affordable child care, but talking about affordable elder care, you know, not just talking about um, mothers ramping back into the workplace, but what are the reentry programs for a woman who leaves at 40 or 50? So that, that I think, from a workplace is what needs to happen. Well, that's exactly why I found it so surprising. One of the things that you point out on your Atlantic piece is that uh, the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, signed an order giving city employees six weeks of fully paid leave, which is great, right? Like, hooray, kudos for him. But that leave only applies to the birth of a child or the adoption of a child, not for taking care of a sick family member. So it seems like this is just being left out of the equation that we're talking about family leave and family care, which is awesome. But elder care and caring for a parent is just being left out of that equation and just sort of is being erased. Yeah, it's been made invisible. And it seems like such an opportunity for the Democratic Party, quite frankly. I'm surprised that this isn't more of a uh, issue that's been taken up by progressive voices who want to stand up for working class people, because this is clearly an economic barrier. You know, we know that Medical expenses are the number one reason for bankruptcy. And if we want to look holistically at what the challenges are that face the American working people, you know, we need some leadership, at least from some wing of some party, uh, to really make elder care an issue because we're not going to have an option very soon, are we? The aging baby boomer generation is, I think, the great anxiety of the millennial generation. <laughs> so, Oh, totally. Yeah. How long can yeah. we avoid the inevitable, you know? Oh, I just got so depressed. <laughs> you know, before the uh, presidential election started, I was really hopeful that it would be a key issue because, you know, Obama, Romney, like motherhood and working mother, it felt like that was every other word out of their mouth. And I was like, okay, so going into 2016, you know, we can hopefully have the candidates talking about elder care. What a great opportunity to shine a light. But then, of course, you know, that uh, election 2016, yeah, Yeah, we're like all grumbling and mumbling under our breaths with you. (laughs) Totally different than anyone expected. So there was no, you know, such a missed opportunity for a lot of things. But I was really disappointed around that. And then, you know, we're spending so much time, I think, just, you know, defending and worrying about what's going to happen to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, that we're not spending enough time um, focused on what progress we can make. But still, that doesn't mean that legislators at the, you know, regional, local level shouldn't be doing more. I think it's a huge opportunity for someone to step forward and be a leader around That's exactly what I was just going to say, that, you know, even though it seems like at the federal level or the national level, perhaps we're not getting the traction that we had hoped on this issue, there's always, always, always opportunities at the local and hyper-local level and state level. And so even if it seems like nationally the dialogue is not happening, I think that you can really push your local lawmakers and local representatives to start making this an issue, particularly since it seems like a lot of their constituents are probably dealing with it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the big obstacle there, and for whatever reason, as you said, this is a an, an invisible issue, and it's it's sort of like an invisible um, demographic, right? So the more we can raise awareness that this exists, the more we can talk about supporting families and thinking about the families who, you know, extend multi-generation, who are caring up, not just down, only going to help. Yeah, 
And what's interesting to me is that if you look at the migration of older Americans, there's been a big exodus, last I checked, last I looked into this, of older Americans moving to states with low property taxes, right? I think Florida has always been a bastion for the elderly, but so is the Southwest right now, most of whom are led by Republicans. Mm. So I just, I find it interesting that this is an issue that is wide open for either party to take up and to make solutions possible on. I was impressed and intrigued by the fact that paid maternity leave, not parental leave, made it to the Republican platform this past election cycle, maybe in name only. <laughs> but um, but it really does seem like these older folks are also the most reliable voters in the whole country. So someone, if, if they are like, if we have a politician listening who wants to pander to a reliable demographic, like figure out how we can take care of aging Americans, because it seems like an issue that's just ready to be made mainstream, whether we like it or not. We're going to have to find ways to talk about this. Yeah, excellent point. I mean, and what's, what's hard is, you know, we're going to need the caregivers themselves, right, to um, to band together, to advocate as a group. And, I mean, they're already carrying such a huge burden. I mean, they truly are dealing with life or death situations every day. But um, it's the the recently former caregivers like me, hopefully, who can make a difference for the ones who are still coming through. I have one more question for you, Liz. How about paid caregivers? You know, I, I'm the daughter of a nurse, so I'm always thinking about how underpaid caregiving work is in the labor market, too. You've written that that this issue of being a working daughter is not something you can really and truly outsource. It's not something that you can finance your way out of. And so it's an issue that doesn't just impact certain classes of Americans. It really impacts all of us. Can you unpack that for us and sort of explain what you mean by that? Yeah, well, part of the reason that it is hard, even if, you know, you've got all the privilege in the world to throw money at this problem, is because you are dealing with an adult and who does have autonomy and say, so um, it's not just the caregiver who has to be on board, right? It's the parent that you're caring for who has to be on board with whatever solution that you want to provide for them. But the other problem that you started um, the question with, I'm so glad you brought up, is the state of paid caregiving. And, you know, the National Domestic Workers Alliance is doing such great and important work around this. Paid caregivers, you know, are are often excluded from workplace protections, um, like minimum wage and paid time off. And um, some states have enacted a domestic workers' bill of rights, but we need all states to do that because, you know, it's sort of like the the dialogue around teachers and and childcare. These are the people who are doing such important work. They're taking care of our families. They're taking care of people at their most vulnerable moments. And we're paying them nothing, and they're working several jobs, and they go home and have to care for their own families. So right there, I mean, I, I think that's the one of the most important things that we can lean on our legislators to look at. So Liz, where can folks find out more about the work that you're doing and more resources on this subject? Uh, WorkingDaughter.com is my uh, website and online community for other working daughters, and sons are welcome, too. Um, that's the best place. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Liz. It has been truly a pleasure getting to know you these past few years and watching you focus in on this subject that needs so much more attention. So thank you for being a pioneer and for sharing some of what Stuff Mom never told us (laughs) with us today. Well, thank you both. I appreciate it.
So this is actually a topic that is very, very close to my heart. Um, I think I've mentioned on the show on and off a couple times that my dad has a chronic illness. Um, if you know me, you know that my dad is basically my hero. Anything good about me and my life, who I am, basically comes from him. And so we're very, very close. And probably not a day goes by that I don't think about what his life is going to look like down the line and what it's going to look like for our family down the line. I think when you're young, it's not something that you think about. Like when I was in my 20s, I never thought about what my dad's end of life situation would look like. And he's not anywhere near that. I don't think he's, if you met him, he's the most energetic, spry, life living person you've ever met. So don't, you know, don't get the wrong idea. But once I think a family member becomes chronically ill, it like hits you, right? It hits you how short life is and that as a child, you will probably have to have some role in this. Right. And that was something that had never occurred to me when I was, you know, in high school in my 20s. It wasn't until I found out that my dad was sick that this was even a thing on my radar. Did it impact, like, your life directly? Do you feel like it's impacted the way you make choices? Yes. I never want to be too far away from where my parents live because I, I, if something happens and I want to go back right away, right. I want to be able to get there. And I'm, I mean, I'm not even someone who visits as much as I should, but I just like knowing, you know, hey, if something happened, it wouldn't be a complicated cross-country flight. I could hop in a car, get on a train and be home. Right. I think I've made a lot of choices based around that. And I think if my family knew what an emotional weight this was for me and how it impacts a lot of my thinking and choice making and all of that, they would be disappointed. They would not want me to be living my life this way, but it's hard. And I think for me, as someone who has only been sort of getting to know what this feels like pretty recently in life, I think it's a bit of a balancing act of like how you make heads or tails of this new thing that frankly, you never thought you were going to be dealing with. And you're pre-caretaking, right? Correct. This is not like you're taking an active role, but you know that it's coming. I know that it's coming, and I know that, you know, I know that with as close as I am to my dad, I know that we'll never be in a situation where, like, someone else is doing right. the caretaking. Like, it's me, right? Like, So are you saying that you want to take up the mantle? Correct. And yeah. that you don't want to find yourself in a position of delegating that responsibility or paying for for professional caretakers. And I, I have to ask you, do you think that's has anything to do with an identity as being a woman? Like, are you more likely to take on that mantle and like kind of want to martyr yourself for this? Or is it is it a conscious choice? Like without what well, I, I mean, think it's, it's both. I think yeah. one is just that my dad and I have a really close relationship. Right. And so, you know, and I also I know my dad, right? Like my dad would never want to have a stranger in his home doing things for him. My dad wants to do things on his own. And if someone has to do things for him, it's not going to be a stranger in our house because my dad's just not like that. And yeah. so one is just from having a close relationship with my parent Two, I do think it's gendered. I mean, all the research suggests that women do end up doing most of this kind of work. And I think that as the only daughter in my family, I think that there is an expectation that as the as the girl, that will fall on me. I do wonder if it's also cultural, because the idea of delegating family obligation to outsiders seems very foreign, particularly in my family. My family is in... My black family? Correct, yes. <laughs> is, this a, uh, is, this a, is that what we're this talking is, about? This is stuff your black mom never told you. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. So I wonder, like, I mean, on all the research, there was very little, shockingly little, on elder care as it comes to race in the United States, other than the racial makeup of professional caregivers, which is 
very non-white. And so I wonder if how that impacts the I would, family decision making. I would love to see research around that. I, just anecdotally, again, I have not seen this research, but anecdotally, I would think that caregiving, hiring outside caregiving is something that communities of color perhaps are not doing at rates that are as high yeah. as their white counterparts. That would be my assumption. And I think if I recall correctly, Latino families are much more likely to have m- multiple generations living under the same roof. Exactly. Which I think is becoming much more of a thing. Um and is probably where I see myself in the future yeah. in terms of elder care. But I I don't know. I I'm dying to hear from our listeners on this, right? Because it is such a private conversation that's fraught even within every family. So it's like there's very few places other than perhaps Liz's Facebook group where people are having these conversations amongst caregivers, amongst decision makers who are navigating these choice moments within each of their own families. And it feels to me like we need to be talking a lot more about this to bring the conversation out of the shadows to get some public policy support on an issue that barely has a name. So, working daughters, we want to hear from you. Do you identify as a working daughter? Do you feel the squeeze that Liz was talking about? Perhaps a lot more than Bridget and I do right now, right? As being unwed, unmarried, childless women, (laughs) which we'll talk more about in this series. But, you know, what does it feel like to play those different roles of mother, of daughter to an aging parent? And, of course, in your professional life, how does that show up? Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious how other folks are navigating this. Are you someone like me who is just now starting to think about these things and how they'll show up in your life? Is a partner or a, someone else that you know going through this? I'm just really curious how this issue is showing up in people's lives. So make sure to hit us up on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast. And as always, we love getting your emails at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Mm-hmm. 